3: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. I have spent much of my journalism career bearing witness to the human cost of climate change, writes Lizzie Johnson in her new book, Paradise One Town Struggled to Survive an American Wildfire. Nearly three years after the campfire decimated the town of Paradise, taking 85 lives, Johnson weaves together its human impact, building from her San Francisco Chronicle reporting and an estimated 500 interviews. She writes of a hospital employee driving a premature newborn and his IV-attached mother to escape the flames, a school bus driver maneuvering to save a vehicle full of kids. Johnson joins us to share Paradise's stories and what they foretell in the face of climate inaction. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. Lizzie Johnson's new book, Paradise, One Town's Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire, released today, tells the stories of people who lived and died in November 2018 in a town ravaged by the campfire. She writes about a young mother fleeing with her newborn, a school bus driver trying to speed away to save a bus full of children, a group of paramedics, patients, and nurses trapped in a cul-de-sac attempting to fend off fire with rakes and hoses. Johnson weaved months of reporting on the fire into her book to create a comprehensive look at what factors exacerbated the damage and what happened after the embers died out. Wildfires are a part of the California way of life, so what lessons can we take from the paradise story to face this new reality? To discuss all of that, I'm thrilled to be joined by Lizzie Johnson, a narrative and enterprise reporter with The Washington Post. She previously spent six years as a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to Forum, Lizzie Johnson. Thanks for having me, Marisa. I was very excited to um, be able to conduct this inter- with you, interview with you, Lizzie, and, and and to read this book, which um, it it's it's a tough read, I'm going to be honest. As somebody who has covered these fires, um it's uh, it's so there's so much detail in here. Um and I really found myself kind of reflecting back on some of the fires I've covered, um which I think are some of the same ones that really started you on the fire beat at the Chronicle. Um including the 2017 North Bay fires. Before we get into the campfire in this book, can you tell me a little bit about how you became, I think what y'all called the fire beat reporter at the Chronicle? How did you come to this beat?
2: Yeah, so I, I actually started out covering San Francisco City Hall, which I always joke is a very different kind of fire. Yeah. And um, <laughs> After, after covering local politics, I wanted to try my hand at something new. So I moved over to just more general assignment reporting. And, you know, I was trying to figure out what it was I wanted my beat to be, you know, you have to navigate everyone else's pre-existing beats and not step on any toes. And around that time, the wine country wildfires happened. And I just felt so drawn to covering the story of the people that were left behind and how they regained that sense of home and tried to rebuild their lives afterwards. And so I did that for about a year and then the fires kept happening. So it just sort of became my beat.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I think you kind of hit on something there, which is like telling the stories of the people who, who, have had to escape these harrowing situations, have often endured devastating losses both of lives and property, um, and then are faced with the questions of whether to rebuild. So I want to ask you sort of what do you see as why you wanted to write a book on the campfire? Um, Because this was a very heavily reported story as you detail in the book. People came from all over the world to this tiny town in Butte County. What, Mm -hmm. What more did you really want to tell and sort of memorialize.
2: Yeah. I mean, I just, I mean, you probably know from covering it too, but there was just something about that fire and about that town that really got under my skin. And I felt very limited in the story that I could tell in newspaper articles. Um, I wanted to have greater impact and get people to remember Paradise and understand what it was, not just remember that it's this place that burned down, but really feel for the people that had lived there for decades and whose family had mountain blood running in their veins and who were struggling with the decision of, okay, do they leave or do they stay? Um, And so I just realized that maybe the only way to do that was to write something that was a little more lasting. And that was a book. Yeah. Talk about how
3: you went about doing this. I mean, as I I kind of alluded to in the introduction, you have a lot of characters in this book that you really <laughs> follow very closely through, uh, especially that, I mean, it's, it's hard to believe, but really the four hours <laughs> where this mm-hmm. town was decimated and it, it feels like a lifetime um, for the people living through it. How did you do this reporting? I understand you actually sort of relocated to Paradise for a while.
2: Yeah, I... I was just so curious about what it was like as a place. And so, you know, I ended up at some points, I felt like I was spending more time in paradise than I was in my actual life in my actual apartment. And so I would go up there and stay with the local family and um, interview as many people as I could. The people who play larger roles in the book, I would spend a lot of time with them, you know, driving around to sports practices or, Uh, eating dinner at their house, just like trying to get to know their story and what had happened on that day. In addition to, you know, eating at the, for a while, there was only one little Thai restaurant that was open, going there and getting green curry over and over and over, taking these long walks across town. So I would understand why people loved this place so much. And even though it had burned down, I could still see that beauty, right? Where at night you could hear the frogs croaking and you could see flowers growing back through the charred earth, Um, And so I just tried really hard in my reporting to get to know the place and to get to know the people as best I could. Yeah, we're talking with Lizzie Johnson about
3: her new book Paradise: One Town's Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. She's a reporter for the Washington Post and a former reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Lizzie, I want to get into some of those stories, but I, I think you <laughs> kind of hit the nail on the head there, which is that Paradise itself is a huge character in this book, right? And so mm-hmm. much of what draws the people who live there there is is the natural beauty, the ponderosa pine forest that surrounds it, and and is really part of it that was also part of the reason um, it was so severely hit by this fire. Can you just describe for people who may not have visited this town, like, what what is Paradise like, um, fire withstanding maybe, but just, like, what's the vibe there? What does it look? And, yeah, what, wh- how would you describe it?
2: Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar with Paradise, it is north of Sacramento, tucked in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. And you drive up into town on this road called the Skyway. And as you're going along the road, you have these sweeping vistas on both sides of deep canyons and trees. And you are, you like, feel like you are going somewhere. Like you were going on a journey to a town. And when you arrive, you know, again, I didn't see it before it burned down. So I can only tell you what I, what I've been told and what I've seen in photos, but just enveloped by this ponderosa pine canopy. People talked about how it was always cooler in paradise than it was in the valley floor in cities like Chico, how the air smelled cleaner, how everything's just like was reminiscent of the past and of the forest. And it was a place where people could build lives and have dreams that maybe they couldn't afford someone somewhere else, right? Like having a house with a backyard and being able to walk their kids to the local elementary school. It was really the every man's place where people could could eke out a life.
3: Yeah, it struck me how many of the characters you profiled had lived in different, in bigger places. Had lived in L.A. or Southern California, Orange County, the Bay. Area. You know, they all went there, sort of looking for something, um, and. I mean, we'll get into this maybe more later, but that also hits on just the sort of bigger tension that we're facing here in California, which is that a lot of the reason people go to these places is that they are more affordable, right? They are smaller Mm -hmm. towns. And I mean, I just wonder broadly, did you get a sense that, I don't know, people are still, I mean, I know it's all over the map, but people are still committed to that um, and not just you know wanting to sort of flee like it, it, are people committed to rebuilding this place
2: I mean that's a really difficult decision for a lot of people mm-hmm. I think particularly because in the past few years Butte County which is where Paradise is has continued to be hit by these massive wildfires you know we had the North Complex last year we have the Dixie Fire this year and so you know, a decision that might have seemed obvious in 2019, which was a year after the campfire, a decision to rebuild might look really different now. When you're worried about evacuating a second or a third time, and you're constantly seeing smoke in that in that in the sky, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think the spirit is still there, and people are are resilient, and they want the town to come back, no different than what you saw after the Wine Country wildfires, where there are posters everywhere saying Santa Rosa strong and. Um, Uh, cinema County strong but it is it is hard it's a tough decision for people to think about you know what do you what do you sacrifice do you sacrifice your sense of home and move somewhere where you feel safe or do you live in a place where you no longer feel safe but is your home
3: I know and especially these stories of I want to we only have a few minutes for our first break so maybe we'll wait until after the break to talk about (laughs) some of your individual characters but one thing that you really made a point to weave into this was the history of the region and not just the sort of more recent history, but the, the native, the indigenous history. And you actually weave in the Konkow, uh, is a as a band of of Native American tribes from the region. You weave in kind of their legend. Can you just talk a little bit about what you found out about the experience of indigenous Americans and sort of what it tells us about what we're facing right now?
2: Yeah. So I heard that legend on a tour I had gone on with the Butte County Fire Safe Council. And so me and, you know, probably two dozen people were standing up on this charred patch of forest overlooking the community of Concow, And two members of the tribe told us this story about a fire that was remarkably similar to the campfire. And it was just so eerie standing on that burnt land, hearing a story that I hadn't heard anyone else tell me before about, you know, that sense of history repeating itself. And given the crisis we're in now with the wildfires getting worse and worse every year, there's something we could learn about learning that almost prehistory that often isn't included in textbooks. And part of that is understanding the way indigenous populations manage the land. And so much of that was stomped out by white settlers when they came over from Europe, that sense of fire being evil and a bad thing. And it's not like it has been on the land for a very long time. It's a healthy part of the ecosystem in California. We just forget it so often. And so I thought that was really important to include for people to understand.
3: Right. That this is something that humans have had to live with and around for centuries and We've just built differently and 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 managed the land differently and put fire and wild, uh, sorry, power lines in all of these places. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, we are going to get into all of that after a short break. We're talking with Lizzie Johnson about her new book, which is called Paradise, One Town's Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. She is a reporter. For the Washington Post now and a former reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, um, we want to hear from you, our listeners, as we endure yet another fire, wildfire season here in California. What memories of the campfire stand out to you? What questions do you have about that fire and the aftermath for Lizzie Johnson? And what questions do you have about, about wildfires in general in California? You can call us now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get into touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim today, we'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim, and today we're talking with Lizzie Johnson. She is a journalist and author of the new book, Paradise, One Town's Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. Um, before we get into the stories, I have a caller. Robert's calling from Ventura. Robert, go ahead.
4: Yeah. Hi, Lizzie. I'm so glad you're doing this work because it's really important for people to understand. I just wanted to add a small detail about the way fires have been in California for the past 1,200 years, that what we're experiencing now is not the same kind of fires we've had in the past. The fires we're having now are more thorough. They burn war- much greater vast areas of territory, and they burn more hotly and more-, more completely so that things can't revegetate and reseed afterwards. So what we're seeing is not the same kind of fires that the Native peoples carefully managed in this area. We're now seeing, thanks to climate change, Uh, fires that are much more intense and permanently more devastating, stripping topsoil when the floods come. And it's really something terrible.
3: Yeah. I mean, Lizzie, that's an amazing point. I had that sort of same reflection as a California native reading this. I mean, when I started covering journalism 20 years ago, it was a big story if one house burned down in a wildfire. Right. I mean, things Mm -hmm. have just changed so dramatically over the past decade, it seems.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, even if you look at, so CAL FIRE, the state firefighting agency, keeps those charts of biggest wildfire, most destructive, deadliest, and, you know, all of the top fires have been, it seems like, past five, ten years, and that's just not normal compared to what we've seen. Yeah. Um, well, okay, I want
3: to talk to about some of the the people that you... Uh, focused on in this book, um, and I am having a hard time deciding which story I want you to tell. So you're going to have to decide: <laughs> is, it, is it Captain Matt McKenzie? Is it Kevin, the bus driver? Is it Rochelle the mother with a C-section? You know, who, who had just had a C-section? Is it Jamie? Um, but yeah, who maybe is, is there a character or story that you think kind of sums up this in in some way that that you want to maybe share with our listeners?
2: Yeah, so. One of the stories that is very close to my heart is the story of Rochelle. She was a woman who had just given birth via C-section about 12 hours before the campfire hit paradise. And I just feel like she was so indicative of all of the people that morning who were going about their life, who never expected something like this to happen and thought really, really hard decisions that they had to make as their, their hometown was overwhelmed by flames. And um, you know, she got separated from her husband, ended up in a stranger's car, evacuating the hospital. That's how they got everyone out so quickly as they just started putting patients in the nurse, in the nurse's cars and the technician's cars. And there is this moment where, you know, she looked at the, this man, she didn't know his last name and she basically told him like, look, I can't really move because I just had a C-section. And if it comes down to it, please just take my baby and run. Go ahead. And after a
3: harrowing—I don't even know how long it was, but a matter of hours, probably—driving around with this with this man, uh, David, they end up back at the same hospital, um, right. which. You know, I think really speaks to something, which is that when you're, you know, down in the Bay Area watching these fires on maps, you think of them as sort of covering this whole area. But really, they burn through in, in a case like this so quickly that sometimes people ended up back in the fire zone, essentially,
2: to, to, to huddle for safety, right? Right. So firefighters call that being in the black Um once a wildfire burns through and all of that really dangerous vegetation is gone, it's actually safer to be back in that area because it, it won't reburn. So they ended up back at the hospital. The fire swept through and they spent all morning trying to get away from it. And they just ended up back where they had started. Wow.
3: Uh, I want to bring in Mark from Riverside. Mark, go ahead.
4: Yeah, hi. Um, I, I live in Southern California now, which is where I'm originally from, but for a number of years back in the seventies, when I was young, uh, we lived in paradise. Uh, my mom got a job at the hospital there and I actually worked part time in high school and, um, uh, she kept in touch with friends over the years. So we would go back and visit every year or two for well the past 40 years. And so, um, after the fire, uh, I had an opportunity to go up and drive through paradise, um, about four months after the fire was just shocked at the utter and total devastation. It reminded me of the photos I've seen of Hiroshima. Um, I mean, just 95% of the home gone. Here and there, scattered, a few were still standing, surrounded by charred debris. Uh, My childhood home and my grandparents' home were both just a pile of uh, rubble and uh, charred uh, the bits of metal. The garage door was crumpled and visible. The the chimney, bits of uh, metal washing machines and things like that, so it was just shocking um but i had a chance to go back last year um in 2020 and so a few homes were starting to be rebuilt and the thing that's really shocked me and amazed me is that i'd forgotten how narrow the roads are in paradise they're very mm-hmm. very narrow and there's no shoulder there's a ditch on either side um and i didn't see any efforts to to be like widening the roads to in, enhance evacuation efforts in, in future. And people, uh, the few homes being rebuilt, several of them were being rebuilt right next to the narrow roads that had existed for years. And I, I just wonder if there's any long-range planning going on, any thoughts about how to make the place safer, um, widen the roads, cover over, over those ditches, build shel- shoulders on the side of the road so that can act as an additional lane for evacuation in the future. Do they have any vision for how to yeah. improve things to avoid this? happening again.
3: Thank you for your call, Mark. Um, Lizzie, this I mean, this wasn't not this
2: was a question that had come up prior to the campfire, correct? Right, right. So, I mean, people have known for a long time that paradise was in a really tenuous spot, that it was really vulnerable to wildfires. And, you know, it's climate changes made things worse. That threat got worse and worse. Firefighters used to call it the paradise problem. But the town was already sort of locked in place and it, it didn't have the money to, you know, buy up properties and widen those roads. And I think even today, it's a similar spot that they find themselves in where there are questions about more evacuation routes or should they build more roads? And it's just tough. They haven't really been able to to do as much as they wish they could.
3: Yeah. We're talking with
2: Lizzie Johnson. She's a
3: journalist and author of the new book, Paradise, One Town's Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. Kathy writes in, a good friend of mine lost everything in that fire and came close to losing family members. Their nerves are raw again with the Dixie Fire that started in virtually the same spot as the Camp Fire. She wants to know, Lizzie, during your interviews, have you talked about what might be considered PTSD with the people of Paradise? And I got to add, Lizzie, I mean... For yourself as well, I mean, the people, the first responders, the journalists who are rushing towards these disasters are are seeing, I mean, in some cases, just horrific things. So talk about, you know, the conversations you've had both with people in paradise and how you've coped with this as a journalist.
2: Yeah. So that's one of the lasting things that we're seeing with these fires, right, is the fire might be over, but for so many people, it will never, ever be over for them in the, in the year, two year, three years after the campfire, people joke about seeing people and seeing them have like fire eyes or fire brain where it's like hard to talk about things, hard to remember things, how, you know, they were having to write down these lists of everything within their home. And they just, you know, couldn't, couldn't muster up the wherewithal to go to the grocery store to buy a new can opener. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it is very traumatic to lose everything. And you know, I'm I'm not the story, but it it is hard to see that in people too. Um, you want to believe that bad things don't happen to good people, and fires like that are just so senseless, and it just seems so random and cruel that so many people could lose lose so much, um, lose their lives, lose lose their family, lose their home, lose their identity, their sense of place. It's just lose their lose their mind. Like it's just, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. Yeah.
3: I mean, it struck me that, you know, in your inscription you you say that most a lot of what you've done is bear witness. And it, it, that is something that I've always really described to, you know, students and other people I talk to about my job as part of our role really is is it's not just telling the story. Sometimes it's just listening.
2: Mhm. I describe it as, you know, I think that when you're covering really hard stories, the thing that gets you through it is a sense of purpose that holding up of the mirror so that other people can see what is happening. Um, you know, people won't know how bad it is in paradise unless we cover it. And that is the greatest privilege to be able to do that, to be able to listen and to sit with someone in, in their hardest moments talking about the hardest day of their life.
3: Yeah. To bear witness to their grief. Um, You know, our last caller kind of alluded to this, Lizzie, but I mean, one of the reasons this book is so riveting isn't just the stories that you're writing, honestly. You are a really talented writer. And um, I'm wondering if you can just describe a little bit about what you saw in the aftermath I mean I think it's hard to imagine if you haven't seen the power of fire just what it can do to uh, you know to metal to, to 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 structure so quickly can you just tell us a little bit about kind of what you witnessed in that regard
2: yeah um after you see a fire like that I remember in paradise you know you're driving around and it just seems like everything was gone like the trees were gutted all of a sudden you could see so far. Um, And it, it like, when you see something like that, you're like, Oh, everyone told me that there were all of these little streets tucked away in the trees, but you know, now you can see everything because the trees are gone. The houses are gone. Um, Seeing the way that fire burns. So often all that's left is these towering chimneys that sort of look like tombstones standing over the wreckage with these like gutted washing machines and dryers and maybe a bed frame or a pile of bikes. And then like smatterings of other random stuff where you're like, how did that ever survive? Like I remember outside of one house, they hadn't taken down their Halloween decorations and there was a plastic skeleton sitting on a bench. Um, and it was like the house didn't survive but somehow this skeleton is still here, right? Like okay. you can sort of recognize things that look almost familiar but they aren't. Um, But the thing that has always really stuck out with me is the paper. Like you'll see books or tiny pieces of family photos or magazines floating around in the air. But if you touch them, they just like disintegrate into what looks like snowflakes, right? It's like right on the edge of it being what the town used to be, except it's just not anymore. It's It's just a ghost town it's the, it's one of the most eerie things I've ever seen paradise after that fire. And you
3: detailed to something I, I witnessed in 2017, which is the randomness of it, right? I mean, you could literally have an entire block decimated, but one house still standing or, you know, um, mm-hmm. the trees are still there because the fire rushed through so quickly, even if they're singed that it's not, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's the other thing that we've learned in the past few years, um, Really, in a lot of these really devastating huge fires, is the role of wind, and mm-hmm. it's not just about you know dry brush and low humidity, but it's 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 these other factors that make the fire move. I mean, it, I think this fire just like blew through any predictions Cal Fire would make when they were training their firefighters mm-hmm. and things.
2: Yeah, so that fire started during a red flag warning, and you know. It, all the fires I've talked to firefighters, they've said, you know, you can fight fire, but you you cannot fight weather. And when the wind was blowing that hard, it just carried the fire right through the heart of Paradise, and there was nothing anyone could do to stop it. It was just blizzards of embers all over the place. The main fire front coming through, and yeah, it struck with this randomness that felt very violent. And I think. I think that's what makes it so hard sometimes for people to wrap their heads around what happened because it's like, well, why did my house burn down, but my neighbors didn't, right? Like, why is my jack-o'-lantern still sitting on the front steps, but everything behind it is gone? Um,
3: or the town just, manager who you say almost wished hers had because she, she's witnessing so much you know, devastation in her community. And, and I think there's the survivor's guilt for people whose property does survive and there.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, even the people whose houses survived, like it's just, I think it's very simplistic from the outside looking in, being like, oh, your house survived. That's awesome. But there is that survivor's guilt. And then they have to deal with smoke remediation, dealing with the fact that, you know, now they're living on a block where everyone is gone in a town where you know the kids can't go to school normally and there's no grocery store and that's a unique kind of trauma too right like yeah sure your house survived but everything else that you knew is gone Absolutely. We're talking with journalist Lizzie Johnson
3: of The Washington Post. Her new book is Paradise, One Town's Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. We want to know what memories of California wildfires stand out to you and what questions you have about wildfires in the state. You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email questions to forum at kqed.org. Matthew writes, My heart goes out to everyone affected by the Paradise Fire, but isn't it also an example of how the California dream must be amended? People should not rebuild an area so close to the wildfire hazard zone, and new development must be based on realistic projections of what's ahead with the climate crisis. It seems that Paradise can happen all over again in so many places, and we're in denial about this. Uh, Lizzie, Mark would ask you asks about zoning and insurance ratings as it relates to the lessons learned from this tragedy.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I found that question, that overarching question, should people rebuild such a difficult one, seeing people grapple with that after the fire, because, you know, places that have burned down are more likely to burn down again. And we are seeing, you know, the insurance industry react to that, dropping people off of their policies and um, things of that nature. But it's a very personal decision whether to rebuild or not. And, you know, it's hard to tell someone who can't afford to live somewhere else and has insurance money to rebuild their home in that spot that they can't, right? So I don't know, it is a question of that California dream and that California identity identity and what it looks like. But I think, you know, the better question is thinking about how we build going forward and realizing that continuing to put houses in these places probably isn't the best idea. And if we do being really careful about how we build them to make them more hardened to future wildfires.
3: Well, right, because you do, I think, detail at least one story, if I'm recalling correct, correctly, of, of someone who was really very strict about all those, you know, CAL FIRE recommendations mm-hmm. about clearance zones and hard, home hardening. I mean, the the rates are far better. It's not, you know, it's not a panacea, but right, when we do sort of follow some of the, the science that we know around protecting property.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, it's hard. I think people always want me to give them answers and my role more so again is holding up that mirror and showing the problem and showing people you know because you live in a fire zone say in in the mountains you can't assume that it won't happen to you you have to do what you can to take care of your property and there are things you can do like clearing defensible space that'll give you a better shot um but I think that is one of the, the biggest things people can do to be more prepared, right, is to realize that they aren't safe from these things and they can't just assume that their house will be safe every year and the fire will never come because eventually it will.
3: Right. And we have just a minute and a half before our break, but where I want to get into some of the sort of details of this. But some of that is just listening. I mean, there's problems with evacuation warnings, but it is heeding those warnings. Right. And maybe even not waiting until it is a mandatory evacuation.
2: Mm-hmm. And absolutely, I think just heating what we've seen in other fires and learning to make a good decision early, having a go bag by the front door, um, you know, as people are responding to disasters, if they don't have a plan, it's a lot. It's a lot harder to act quickly, and so those are easy things to get yourself out the door to know what to do when disaster arrives.
3: Right, because once you're in it, it's really hard to think clearly and properly. <laughs> yeah,
2: <sighs> absolutely or
3: good information at all. Right. All right. We're talking with journalist Lizzie Johnson. Her book out today is called Paradise, One Town's Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. You can uh, tell us what questions you have at 866-733-6786. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum. You can also email us to forum at kqed.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. And for Mina Kim, we are talking with Lizzie Johnson. She's a journalist and author of the new book, Paradise, One Town Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. All right, Lizzie, I want to get into the nitty gritty of what you found. Um, and, you know, I've referenced my own reporting here. And in, in 2017, after the wine country fires, we did what a lot of journalists have done, which is ask for a lot of 911 tape. And Dig through that to kind of find out what went wrong and, and why it was so difficult. And I got to say, reading this story, it's kind of frustrating because it feels like deja vu all over again. Like there were so many similarities between the problems we saw in 2017 and lessons that either weren't learned or put into place by a year later. Um, so what were can you kind of just detail for folks like what were the biggest challenges when we talk about why. Eighty five people perished in the flames. I think another 50, you know, died of related causes. Um, Was it emergency alerts? Was it evacuation routes? Was it just the force and fierceness of this fire? Was it all the above?
2: It was all the above. Um, And I think one of the bigger issues is that, you know, for a long time, we assume that fires will act in the ways that we've seen in the past. And I feel like there was almost this slow reckoning in recent years of, oh, wait, these fires are acting in completely new ways, burning much harder, burning more houses, burning more land, and communities just weren't prepared for that kind of disaster. And we really saw that in the wine country wildfires. We saw that in Paradise. Um, it seems like every year we're seeing it in a new place.
3: Absolutely. Um Can you talk? I mean, one of the biggest challenges we see, though, also is just the the authorities' ability to kind of get eyes on the actual fire and kind of their arms around where it's headed. And that was a big issue in this mountain community is, you know, this place where there's only a couple of ways sort of out of town. Talk about that. Why is that so hard? I mean, I think we, I think in this day and age, you think, oh, there's drones, there's aircraft, there's, you know, we have all these resources. Like, why don't we even know where things are?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, but when a fire is moving that fast, it's really hard to know where it's at. And that was definitely something that firefighters confronted with on the morning of the campfire. The wind was blowing so hard, they couldn't really get helicopters or aircraft up to drop water, to drop slurry, to get surveillance. Um, the fire was burning down all of their fire cameras, so they couldn't really see where the fire was at. They would send people down to go look for the fire, and by that point, it was already well past um, where they thought it would be. So it's hard to figure out you know, when, when to evacuate people, um, where the danger is when you can't see it and you can't figure out where it's at because it's just moving that fast.
3: Right, um, and then, The other issue we see is just this question over whether to evacuate. And, you know, it was so chaotic in the early hours of this fire. Um, We know that there was a lot of miscommunication and all of that. But there was also a hesitation on the part of town officials to call for a full evacuation what what is your understanding of why that's such a difficult question? And, I mean, afterward, even the mayor says at one point at a community meeting, like, I, I don't think we made a huge mistake. If everyone had been evacuated at once, it would have been even worse gridlock. And it, it struck me she might not be totally wrong about that, right?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, they plan, you plan for the worst case scenario that you know. And up until that point, there had been nothing like the campfire. So they didn't expect to have to plan for something like that. In all of their drills, they had planned for partial evacuations in town. Past wildfires had taught them that when you put everyone out on the street at the same time, no one went anywhere because the streets gridlocked. And so that was the model that they were going off of. And you have to remember, too, that, you know, firefighters couldn't even figure out where the fire was. Neither could the people that were making decisions about how to evacuate people or when to do it.
3: I mean, in some cases, though there was some pressure, uh, sort of. I think I think some people just sensed how bad this was, and and I think that as much as there were maybe mistakes made, there were also good calls made early that that you detail. Um, I'm thinking about you know a, a, like early requests for air rangers and a regional incident management team, um, a dispatcher essentially going out of you know out of the chain of command to call for the full evacuation. Like you see how these sort of individual moments can actually you know impact the course of people's lives
2: Mm -hmm. and make a huge difference yeah so I think the biggest thing the biggest thing that happened that morning was there were a few people who realized just how big and overwhelming it was and they made decisions based off of that they realized that you know we aren't going to catch the fire we can't figure out where it is it's probably already in town we're going to evacuate people and we're going to call in a team who can actually help manage this fire yeah I want
3: to bring in Susan from Healdsburg. Susan, go ahead.
6: Oh, hey. Thank you for taking the time to take my call. Um, we are uh, survivors of the 2017 Tubbs fire, and much of what you're saying in terms of um, lack of information and kind of the chaos of the night was certainly apparent on those nights. And thinking that this was a one-off, we decided not to rebuild in Santa Rosa, and we moved up to Healdsburg and have since, you know, evacuated every year since then, But something that has helped me to maintain some sense of semblance and and community is we are part of a group called COPE, uh, Citizens Organized and Prepared for Emergencies, and it is a North Bay um, organization, and I might not, you know, it probably, it's it's trying to get reaches and fingers throughout uh, the area, and um, it is an organization that is neighbor to neighbor, um, and we have... um, um, associations that give us information on how to best prepare, how to keep our neighbors informed. Um, we have a text chain called GroupMe that our fire marshal and fire chief is on um, that takes indexes from fire cameras and red flag warnings and the PG&E outages and really give um, citizens up-to-date, um, up to, up to date, clear uh information that um, does not, is not from a rumor mill, which can so often happen in these circumstances. And so the COPE organization is something that I would highly recommend, and I, I'm not sure it's happening in Paradise, but um, it does help us to take care of each other, especially those, you know, we're in a neighborhood now, and some people have been there for quite some time, think this will never happen to them, and that's really kind of short-sighted and it's a way to take the personal element out of it and not judge people if they don't want to get ready instead it's more like okay well let's work together and we will help as much as we can with you and 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 it's just an information gathering event um and like i said neighbor to neighbor and we share apps that's a new one is called watch duty which is amazing and it really helps to um to keep uh, fire professionals able to do their job, so that we're able to help with our community information distribution. So, awesome. and can I mention one yeah. more thing? You did mention in the beginning about the Native California speakers and uh, and talking about wild li- uh, wildfire or land management. Um, the talk I just was at uh, locally that would that would really cause some offense, where they like. It's more about shepherding land, having that collaborative relationship and not controlling it through management, because I think that is not really inherently what uh, the Native American people had had um, through the, you know, through through the times. they just, It's working with the environment and, and nature and being shepherding and collaborative rather than trying to manage and take power and control. Well, thank so you, that's Susan. That's one thing I wanted to clear up. Yeah. So thank you for and, your time.
3: Yeah, thanks for calling and we're so sorry to hear about your home. A lot there, Lizzie, but I mean, she does make a great point which is that uh, both formal you know, neighborhood fire councils, which exist throughout the state organizations like the one she's talking about, or just a sense of community, like knowing who your neighbors are and if they need to be checked on. It's so important in these places where they have a high fire risk.
2: Absolutely. And I mean, we saw that in Paradise, too, and we've seen that in so many other fires. Um, Neighbors stepping up and helping each other, checking on their elderly neighbors, making sure they get out, making sure that, you know, someone's pets aren't left behind. That's one of the biggest things too, right, for personal preparedness is looking out for each other.
3: Absolutely. Um, Anna writes, I will never forget an interview I heard on a national outlet with a Paradise School principal. The interviewer asked questions like, how will you get students back to class without a school building? And do you think this... Uh, And do you think school will resume on schedule this year? And how are your students coping with the fire? The principal, whose own home was lost in the fire, very carefully answered primarily with we just don't know right now, while the interviewer kept up the same line of questions. Eventually, the principal said quietly, we don't know if our students are okay. We don't know if we have students. The interviewer was silent. I held my breath at home. I'll never forget it. Lizzie, yeah. Lizzie, that is sort of the opposite of your interviewing style. Knowing what I know about you, <laughs> I mean, which is, I think, one of the reason you were able to get such, um, just so close to these people and tell these stories. Can you talk about that and, and maybe more broadly, what it's like seeing the sort of national and international media descend on a place like this where such trauma is is, is under, you know, they're undergoing such trauma.
2: Yeah. It's funny you read that because I wrote a story for the San Francisco Chronicle about the Paradise High principal. His name is Lauren Lighthall and his son was part of the senior class that was supposed to graduate that year. And so I I followed him and his son as they were spending their last few weeks at that high school because um, at the end of the day, Lauren realized that he couldn't just keep living mired in this trauma and not the best thing for his family was not to rebuild in paradise, but to move somewhere else and start afresh. And um, that's the kind of storytelling that I think is really important after disasters like this, right. Is to tell the nuance and to, and to tell it sensitively and to, to show what those hard decisions look like, right. Like this principle was so big for so many teens in that school and, um, I sat in his office and watched his you know the seniors put his stapler in jello and hid his crocs, and he would always give them granola bars and he cared about them so much, but the fire was just so hard for him too that even he ha- he had to leave,
3: yeah, and I mean we do have to um think about yeah that trauma which I think a lot of Californians are dealing with even if they weren't directly you know having to to flee a fire, but the smoke and and the just the sort of deja vu of this happening every year uh is is challenging um Julie writes, I have family in Susanville and at Lake Almanor, and I don't think we're hearing enough about how hard things are right now up there. My family has had purple smoky air quality for weeks or months. They have problems with power and sometimes get four hours a day of electricity at random times with rolling blackouts so they can't rely on an air purifier or air conditioning. It's hot inside and out with no relief. There are a few cooling centers with power, but then there's COVID. The orange sky yeah. day in San Francisco broke so many people who then left town. My family has had orange guys for weeks and worse, but we're rarely hearing about it. The problems feel so big, but if we don't talk about them, we'll never get solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in for Mina Kim. We are talking with journalist Lizzie Johnson. Her new book is Paradise, One Town Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. Um, Adrian writes, the state of California wants our city of Pacifica to build more housing, but residents do not want that housing, especially not in areas and hilltops that are now covered in dense trees. We also don't have and don't want the infrastructure, such as other exits from town and larger roads, that would make this possible. Um, that's kind of a familiar story, right, <laughs> <laughs> But it speaks to the challenge because housing – you know, we need more housing in California. And, I mean, we've saw we saw this up in Paradise, right, where – I mean, there's just no – where for people to go in that region because there's so little rental stock available.
2: Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. I wish I had answers to uh, to big problems like that. <laughs> but I all I can say is, you know, maybe think twice before building your your house in an area that will likely burn down. Um, I was really struck by what a, a caller had said earlier in the show about, you know, that short-sightedness, thinking that a fire won't happen to you and you know, it likely will. So yeah. it's a big problem. Like we need more housing, but we also need safe housing. It's not going to do anyone any good if we build a bunch of housing that burns down in 10 years.
3: Yeah. I, I You know, we have about five minutes left and I don't want this all to be doom and gloom. I mean, we have seen changes. Um, oh, my God, we haven't even gotten into PG&E, but we have spent plenty of time over the years talking <laughs> about them. Um, but, you know, we've seen these power safety shutoffs that that were just referenced um, become more normal. Um, we know that it's looking pretty likely that Dixie Fire, um, which is still raging, you know, and headed toward Mineral, unfortunately, may have been started by PG&E. Uh, what are your thoughts, having watched this all kind of unfold in terms of like, just how PGE e in particular has responded to this and if and if we've seen any positive changes over the past few years
2: yeah I mean and oh, e has started so many fires yeah right it just makes you feel a little sick but you know it's never just PG e alone um, things are so dry we have houses in places where they shouldn't be the forests are diseased and dying it's just like hard to untangle that knot because there are so many different issues connected to these fires. Um, again, I wish I had answers. Like I think PG and E has taken some good steps that they're they're trying with these outages and they're trying to underground lines. But even those things aren't simple because then it causes more problems with you know people with medical issues not being able to use their delicate machinery or people not being able to charge their phones and it's just. You know, time and time again, I'm reminded that it's going to get worse before it gets better. But at least we're trying something and trying to find our way out of this.
3: Yeah. I want to ask you uh, in the couple of minutes we have left about, uh, you know, you are now working for The Washington Post. I think you're in D.C. area. Um, and one thing uh, we share, a former boss, Audrey Cooper of The Chronicle, who's now at WNYC, <laughs> and she talks a lot about, you um, And has talked a lot in the past about the sort of East Coast bias, about how fires are sort of covered as this novelty in the national media. And, um, you know, in general, we kind of talked about the parachuting in and then everybody sort of leaves town and people are just left without all the attention and support necessarily. What's your thought having, you know, moved out from California? Do you do you see any of that changing? Do you think people are sort of aware of that frustration that a lot of folks on this side of the country have?
2: So it's really interesting. One of my very, so I moved to DC last month. um, And one of my very first weeks here, I walked out of my apartment one day to take my dog to the park and could smell smoke. Mm -hmm. And everyone at the dog park was talking about the fires in California. And some of the stuff they were saying, I was sort of offended by. It was that East Coast bias. um, I was like, oh, you don't really get where this smoke came from and what is in this smoke, but the smoke is people's lives and homes and everything they knew. <laughs> but I think as the fires get worse and worse, it becomes harder to ignore that problem, right? Like maybe you can see the wine country fires of 2017 is like a one-off, but gosh, when it happens every single year, I think that gets it through people's heads that this isn't, you know, something that just happens, that it's here to stay and that we have to care about it. And um, eventually we're all going to be impacted by these climate disasters one way or another, whether it's our loved ones or our friends or ourselves. And just because we live across the country doesn't mean we're safe from them. For sure.
3: Well, now we have you and Audrey on the East Coast to help set some folks straight.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I have done my part talking to those people at the dog park. It was like, I'm sorry. I, yeah, you can't think that that's wrong.
3: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Very quickly before we go, a, a listener, Marjorie, wants to know if did you think anyone who may have been a climate change denier are changing views after having something this horrific happen to their community?
2: Yeah, I think there's definitely room for people to change their minds. And I have talked to people before who were like, oh, I just didn't I didn't realize. Um, but it is a tough thing. I think sometimes people change their minds and sometimes they become more entrenched in their beliefs it can be easy to you know blame other things like just blame pg and e and not see all of the other factors that intersect with it so it's hard to say for everyone but i think yeah some people did realize that you know climate change is real and it matters right (laughs) All right, we're going to leave it there. We've
3: been talking with journalist Lizzie Johnson. Her book out today is called Paradise, One Town's Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. Just a gripping account. Lizzie, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you for having me. It was so nice to talk to you.
3: You've been listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim, thank you so much to Lizzie and our listeners. Have a great day.